Welcome to the third episode of Culture Curriculum Podcast with your hosts, Isaac and Jenna Kloppenstein. I want to kind of recap what we talked about from episode one with our ship analogy. And so if you remember, we view a leader as a captain of a ship. And the very first step to building elite culture is that that captain needs to have a clear and concise vision or a North Star that will help guide that ship. And once that is in place, then the second step is that they've got to, no matter the wind, no matter the waves, they've got to be able to keep keep that ship on course. They've got to stay the course. In today's episode, we're going to be elaborating on that stay the course piece, and we are very honored and excited to be joined by Tim Kite. And we're going to approach this from a coaching perspective, but we are 100% believe that this can be applied to any discipline, to any organization. And so we're happy to have you along uh, for the journey. Let's prepare. Stay the course. Like Isaac said, Tim, thank you so much for being here. We're grateful to have the opportunity to sit down and talk with you today. Isaac and I both highly respect you and we view you as our mentor when it comes to building elite culture and to teaching how to do so. Tim is the founder and president of Focus 3, a firm whose mission is to help companies around the world align the power of leadership, culture, and behavior to achieve next level results. He is the author of several high impact training programs, The R Factor, Lead Now, The Power of Culture, Winning, and Attitude Matters. Tim has worked closely with Urban Meyer and the Ohio State football team, Go Bucks, as the Buckeyes leadership coach. His work with Ohio State has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Sports Illustrated, and ESPN. So, Tim, welcome to the Culture Curriculum Podcast, and thank you for joining us. Yep, so this has been uh, this is this is a great opportunity to be with you guys. I'm glad to be here this morning. Thank you. So, we wanted to share a story with you, Tim, that I'm not sure that you're familiar with. Reflecting back on the past few years, Isaac and I were thinking about a trip that we took about two and a half years ago to Mexico and the decision that we would read above the line together. At that time, we didn't know your name. (laughs) We um, did not know that you were connected with above the line. But what we did know is that we both connected with the message of that book and that we immediately came home on a high from reading that book and started to implement the principles and the system that were taught within that book within our teams that we were coaching at so that time. I, so I've got a question right off the bat. So go back to when you first read the book and what was the first thing that got your attention about the above the line book and the content? What was it that grabbed you right away and said, Hey, this book has something important to say. What, what was the first one or two things that grabbed your attention about, about the book? I would say for me, it was the first three steps of that R factor, that the, the pause, uh, get your mind right, and step up. I think were so intuitive, but I'd never really defined them that concisely, I guess. And so when I heard that, I'm like, that makes sense to me. That's exactly how it should happen. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I'd go kind of more simplistic on that. It was so relatable. It was so clear. And it was like, 
I wouldn't say obvious, but it was, this makes sense. And it made sense to us. And it was something that, and it, it was what we said. It was a system. It was something that we could take back to our teams. And that I remember, and if any of my players are listening, they'll remember. I took back, I spent hours outlining that book and I canceled our practice the next day. And I had a whiteboard session and I said, this is it. I mean, this is the system that we're going to go on. And it was very well-defined and it was very clear to us on if you want to create elite culture in your program or your team, this is how to do it. Yeah. So that's, that's been our experience uh, or my experience for 30 plus years and working with organizations and businesses and teams. And that certainly was the experience at Ohio State. And I think one of the main reasons why Urban adopted our system was because it's not complex. It's true, but it's, it's clear and simple. And what we've discovered as we work with organizations in building culture or building leadership or trying to get people to behave at the next level is it has to be clear, simple, and actionable. The system you use has to be clear, simple. Well, one, you need to have a system. And then number two, it has to be clear, simple, and actionable. And there's a quote in that book that we gave to Urban, and Urban's now he's used it ever since, and we teach this everywhere. And that is that average coaches have quotes. Good coaches have plans. Elite coaches have a system. Yeah, and I love that. And that quote stuck with me, and I definitely shared that quote uh, with other coaches in our club and with my team at that time. So here's, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but, but conversation, here's a mistake coaches make for anyone listening. A lot of coaches mistake their plan for a system. They think their plan is, and it's not the same thing. And it, the, the, the system is the, the larger approach you have to building leadership, to building culture, to building something. When I first met urban, you know, we talked about, and I asked him, I said, do you have a system for offense and defense and special teams? A rhetorical question. He goes, yeah. Right. <laughs> you have a system for strength and conditioning. Well, Coach Mick does. Absolutely. You have a system for recruiting. Absolutely. You have a system for leadership development. Uh, no. We have a, we have a plan. We, have, we, we do things. And he, does, he did a lot. And, and the stuff he did was really good. But there was no system in place. And that, that's what is interesting about Ohio State and Urban is, and he says this all the time, and I agree 100%. There's, there's not a lot of stuff that I brought to Ohio State that's new to them. What I brought was a simple system. I systematized or helped them systematize building leaders, building culture, and building that competitive behavior. Yeah, and that's why Isaac and I love what you're, you and Brian, for those of you who don't know, Brian Kite is Tim's son and the CEO of Focus 3. But Isaac and I have listened to many of your guys' podcasts, and that is that is why we love listening to you guys as opposed to maybe somebody else. Because just like you said, it's not like you guys are coming up with something so new. And But you, what you're doing is you're taking what we know and what Urban, Urban Meyer, I mean, what, one of the greatest coaches of all time in all sports, right, that he knows – but you're giving him a system on how to communicate it towards his program. Yeah. I think what I've heard Brian use the phrase is a thousand year knowledge or something like that. It's true a thousand years ago and it will be true a thousand years from now. We often summarize that with just the phrase timeless truth. Okay. So we love studying Aristotle or Plato or Solomon or just what are the timeless truths that right. if Seneca 
I mean, what are these truths that have been around for a long, long time and have stood the test? They've been tested. Right. They've been pressure tested by reality. That's that's we deeply believe in that. Can you elaborate a little bit on the difference between a plan and a system? Yeah, I mean, uh, you think about a game plan, right? A game plan is when you sit down and you study the opponent and you look at what they do and what their tendencies are and how they approach their particular uh, way of playing the game. And it just take it out of the football realm, but just take it sports in general or even a business plan. Okay, we want to we want to achieve this goal. We want to have this uh, strategy, this plan to, to, to go ahead and go do those goals and or, or do the action necessary to achieve those goals. That's a plan. And... What a system is, is an overarching um, um, approach, methodology for belief in behavior. And it's the, if you look at it from a hierarchy perspective, a plan is a, is a mid-level series of steps you want to take, whereas a system is built on timeless truth, things that don't go away, and then it's simply, it's a, here's another word for a system, is, a, is an overarching framework, an overarching framework. Another term that maybe people have heard is paradigm. We're talking high level. And, and in our approach, the highest level system that we provide is leadership, culture, behavior, results. We call that the performance pathway. And you guys read about that in the book. Mm-hmm. That's the highest level system. Now think about this for a second. Leaders create culture. Culture drives behavior. Behavior produces Results. That's the overarching paradigm, framework, or system that all organizations are subject to. Now, stop for a second. Within that system, all plans happen. And so if you have a plan that says, we want to go achieve, our goal is to achieve 100. And our actions, the things we want to do to go achieve that are these. And we've got to, we've got to build this relationship over here and build this product over here, execute this. The ability to execute that plan is completely contingent upon the quality of the system. So the effectiveness of the leaders, the clarity and strength of the culture, and the discipline level of behavior determines the extent to which that plan gets executed. Here's another way to say it. Um, Plans communicate and clarify what you want to do. Systems, particular culture, determines whether you do it and how well. I like that. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. No, a lot of sense. Yeah. Can you go back and lay that out for our listeners, that, those components, one more time? Yeah, I had a cup of coffee there. So, uh, <laughs> it, leaders build culture. I mean, culture drives and energizes behavior, and then behavior produces results. So, look at it in your in your head from left to right. You know, put it in boxes. Box one is leadership, and then put an arrow to the right. Box two is culture. And then arrow coming out to the right. And then behavior is in that third box. And then arrow to the right would be results. So leaders, culture, behavior, results. It's a flow and it's a dynamic flow. And every element in that system matters. And, and think about this. Notice what the system says. It doesn't say if you do that, you're going to get great results. It says however you do it, you get the results based on the quality of that system. So mediocre leaders create a mediocre culture, which drives and sustains mediocre behavior, which produces mediocre results. And, and I'll, one thing, and then, and, then, and then ask your next question. Here's a really great way to think about this. Your system is perfectly designed to get the results it's getting. Hmm. Yeah. 
Can I ask about use the verb energizes that yeah. culture energizes behavior, and I've heard you were, use the word encourage. I think also, but I very rarely hear you use the word inspire or motivate. Is there a reason for that? Because that's something that Jen and I have talked about a little bit. The difference between encourage and inspire, I think, is significant. We we view inspire as it immediately bumps focus high, and then it's going to gradually decrease over time. Whereas encouragement will gradually build that focus over time. Is that is that a purposeful? Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's I think that's accurate. I I do. Um, we're big on words. We we I study right. words carefully, and and we're very intentional about the language that we use. And and I, I and the reason why is words carry content. Words yep. carry meaning. And I think in America today, we are sloppy in our use of words. Even the words we just use, leadership, culture, behavior, those words are frequently used and not very frequently defined. You, you say leadership development today, and what organization hasn't already read, done, seen? I mean, how many <laughs> leadership books are there out right. there? <laughs> we are awash in leadership stuff, but we're not better. Yep. Culture is another one. People talk about it all the time, all the time. You know, cohesion and chemistry and culture and climate and it's you know inside the organization it's just it's constant but they don't stop to define what it is and how it actually works and I think those other words are similar inspiration encouragement motivation so my encouragement to people no pun intended would be go back and study what the words actually mean and and find out what 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 the original intent was of the people who coined the phrases for example the word encouragement is a is a Latin word that literally means to give strength of heart to someone else. That's what the word means. Courage is Latin word is Latin word for strength of heart. Core means heart in Latin. Courage means strength of heart. And to encourage means to give strength of heart to somebody else. Thus, to discourage means to take strength of heart away. So people use the word encouragement all the time and don't even, in fact, they use the word core and don't know what it means. And what, what that whole string of words, core, courage, encourage, discourage, what that means is this. Everything starts in the heart. Everything starts in the heart. It starts in the heart of the individual. It starts in the heart of, of the coaches or the leaders. There's a heart to a company or a team. And so the, the great initial question in culture and in everything is, what do you want at the heart of your program. Amen. What, what, Amen. Do, what do you want at the heart of the way you go about your life? And that, and that, Isaac, that's a decision people make. You, you believe from the heart. And here's what we know about culture and performance. There's a profound difference between a concept in your head and a belief in your heart. A profound difference. And we know this. Under pressure, you will compromise a concept. Under pressure, you will not compromise a core belief. Hmm. So the great challenge in leadership and culture is to move the values, principles, beliefs, if you will, from the paper to the hearts. And that's, that is really hard to do. It's way easier to publish a culture statement than it is to get people to put it on their hearts. Couldn't agree more. So that takes me to something that you guys talk about all the time, Tim. And one of the big reasons that we think highly of you and that we continue to tune in to listen to you and Brian talk in your podcast, you guys time and time again, focus on that behavior piece, the action, making things actionable. And I can recall on multiple 
uh, times that either you or Brian have said something about us as coaches spend so much time sitting our players down and focusing on writing out goals for this season of our program and just writing them down. And then we think, okay, we'll come back and we'll revisit these goals and we'll narrow it down. And now we spent all this time on goal setting and now we're midway through the season and we haven't put anything <laughs> into action. And you guys focus on that action piece. Can you take us through that? I mean, that is, that is why I feel I can speak for myself and I think Isaac too. We've connected with you guys so much is because you are, you're that, you coach the missing link. As coaches, we talk about the goals and we talk about the outcomes we want, but that middle piece, you guys coach and you give us a system to implement. Yeah, that's the R factor, you know, and, and each of those three pieces of the performance pathway, we've developed a subsystem. We have a system for leadership. We have a system for culture. We have a system for behavior. So the overarching framework of leadership, culture, behavior, results is great, but then you have to double-click. All right, what is leadership? Again, you need a simple, clear, actionable system for leadership, and same thing for culture. So you're referencing the behavioral piece. Well, rewind real quick. Yeah. Lay out, can you lay out the E plus R equals O for those of our listeners just that— a, Just about to go there. That's oh, where I was awesome. going. So our simple system for behavior is called the R factor, and that's based on a simple— equation that we use or system called event plus response equals outcome or we abbreviated e plus r equals o and it's it's powerful because ero um, everything in life comes down to those three things there is no situation in your life to which that does not apply and it it teaches us that we don't control the events of life and you get hundreds of events during the day you don't control any of them and so stop trying. Don't try to control. Understand the E, but don't try to control it because you can't. Mm -hmm. And so the clarity of understanding is where your power is. Right. And then you respond to those events, and then your, your responses produce an outcome. Well, you don't control outcomes. You earn them by the quality of your response. So in E plus R equals O, those three elements, you control one thing, how you choose to respond which is, again, why we call it the R factor, because that's the one thing in that system that you have 100% control over. When people develop, we call it the R factor mindset. When, when people say, okay, I don't control events, I don't control outcomes, I produce outcomes by the quality of my R. If I'm not getting the outcome that I want, I need to make my R factor better. The O's that I get are determined by the R that I choose, and if I'm not getting the O that I want, it's because I'm not effective enough yet at my R factor, so I just need to produce a better R. Now, that's the R factor mindset. Most people don't have that mindset. The mindset most people have is, okay, if I'm not getting the outcome that I want, it must be because of a terrible E, and they start blaming the event, and we call that, that mindset BCD, blame, complain, defend, and it is lethal to elite performance. In fact, it's lethal to any, it's lethal to healthy relationship. It's lethal to the, a culture. It's lethal to driving your car effectively. And as soon as you start blaming, complaining, and defending about the E, or blaming it, then you've, you've, you've literally abdicated responsibility for your behavior. It's huge for our marriage. Yep. 
Which it's BC, been really interesting. B, BCD or R factor? Which of those? I think both. Both, both but <laughs> the BCD for sure. To take a step back and and say, you know, how am I approaching this? Um, am I putting more emphasis or trying to control events and outcomes, or am I only focusing here specifically on what my R is? Which takes us. I mean, that brings us to a point of this can all well. This can all be used on an individual level and should be before you take it into a program. And something that you said about your mindset. So we talk about three P's in our state of the course component. And one of those is positive self-talk. In your six disciplines, you talk about get your mind right. So let's, well, let's orient. So when we say E plus R equals O and manage your R factor, manage your response, we teach six disciplines for managing your R in a discipline-driven way. And those six are press pause for clarity. Get your mind right for positive energy. Step up to take discipline action. Adjust and adapt to be flexible. Make a difference to deliver great experiences to other people. And then build skill. So those are our six. Pause, get your mind right, step up, adjust and adapt, make a difference, build skill. Right. And we love those. And our three Ps that we use are pause, positive self-talk, and purposeful, be intentional, and it's no coincidence, like we said, Tim is a mentor of ours, and he drives a lot of our thinking through this. And so going into that positive self-talk that we say, or get your mind right in your six disciplines, what, what guides those thoughts? Keep asking, Jenna. Keep, keep going with, which I fully understand the question. Okay. I mean, so, where do your thoughts come from? So... When I, if I'm presenting this to my team, right, and this is something that we've been thinking about a lot because Isaac and I are going to try to implement, or we are going to, we're going to implement this into our programs this year. Me as women's college soccer coach at Capital University, him at Bishop Hartley with the boys basketball team. And when we're, when we're teaching these to our players, when I say that, and I say that second P is positive self-talk. And that, to me, relates to that's getting your mind right. It's a mindset shift, right? Where the first P, you've already paused. Your first discipline, you've already paused. Then you're getting your mind right or your positive self-talk. What's influencing that self-talk? I get it now. Yes, so here's an interesting reality about the way the human mind, the human brain works. You You are the author, the creator of those thoughts. there's something and we make the point about choice and I think part of what what happens today is that people are not trained in making disciplined choices about what thoughts occupy their mind now having said that we also know that the mind will on it we call it default and that is the mind will generate impulsive less than effective thoughts on its own that you didn't choose right I mean everybody listening to this and the three of us here sitting at this table do Isaac, do thoughts come into your head where you, you, you know, some impulse you have about, I didn't cultivate or choose that. It just popped in there. Right. Does that happen to you, Jenna? Absolutely. Right. So what happens then is we call that a defining moment. What you do at that moment, you either submit to that thought and allow that thought to have its way with you or you, what you choose to be discipline driven and you challenge that thought and you shift it, you change it. 
you refocus, you redirect your mind and by bringing other thoughts that are, to your point, purposeful and intentional. You bring purposeful self-talk. And what's hard about it is those, whatever thoughts you have in your head, whatever self-talk you have in your head, feeds emotion. And once emotions get fed, particular self-talk, emotions like the feeding. They like to be fed, particularly negative ones. When you're angry, the brain does not say, pause, use positive self-talk and be purposeful. When it's mad, it doesn't <laughs> do your three piece. It doesn't do that. In fact, when you're mad, what your brain says, just talk to me and tell me stories. Give me self-talk that feeds the anger. And, 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 if, and you've got to challenge that. Mental toughness, mental discipline is saying no to the emotion and saying no to the self-talk that feeds the emotion and redirecting the brain in a different direction. And here's why it's hard. Even while you still feel mad. The, the number one reason why people don't engage in positive self-talk is, and this sounds silly, is they don't feel like it. And I told this to a client yesterday. You, you have to engage in self-talk that's different than how you feel if you want to be great. Hmm. You have to engage in self-talk that's different than how you feel if you want to be great. Now, if you continue with the kind of positive self-talk, you will, over time, shift your emotional state. The problem is it doesn't happen fast. It's consistency. Yeah. Building yeah, the skill. It, like it, is, it is consistency, but it's a little bit, I'm gonna, it, it's tenacity. Mm. So I like it, that. It is. It's tenacity. And I, and I, you know, I, I, I'm, I practice this stuff myself. I'm, I, I'm not perfect at it, but I've, I, I grow every day. But I experience emotions like I travel all the time, right? And when I travel all the time, you experience delayed flights and nasty people and unfriendly airline, airline employees and canceled flights. And I was flying back from San Diego earlier this past week, and my flight got canceled. In fact, we, we had a 90-minute delay on the airplane, on the tarmac in Denver. They finally fixed the problem. We took off. 30 minutes later, the captain came on and said, the problem isn't fixed. We're turning back to Denver. Flight canceled. Oh. Well, my first impulse was what? What first emotion was irritation, BCD, all this negative stuff flooded my mind. Yeah. Well, I'm trained in this. So I pressed pause. I got my mind right. I redirected my mind onto self-talk that I've already practiced, that I had available to me. And I told myself positive, productive stories. I call it be real, think positive. But the reality is the flight's canceled. The reality is I'm going to have to get a hotel room someplace in the Denver area. Right. The reality is the meetings I had the next day are not going to happen. That's real. Now, I can focus on that and be negative, or I can focus on what I need to do and be positive. So real, be positive. And so I use self-talk that I have developed, and, uh, and, it, and it worked out. Yeah. I hope that picture is helpful. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. I, th I think Jenna mentioned you know, our desire to implement this with our players. Um, and we've heard you use the term culture playbook. I guess, what is the format? Where do you start with a culture playbook? Well, the genesis of that, a great question, by the way. The genesis of that is I've been in this business a long time, and I've seen a lot of culture statements, and they all look the same. Right. I mean, they're the same. They're formatted the same. They read the same. Um, I, I call those the universal claim to uniqueness is my description. <laughs> um, you can literally take the name of the company or a bank or a hospital or team off the top of it and put a new one in there. It's pretty much the same stuff. Yep. And then working with employees, 
And the reason why behavior is so big for us is they discovered people read the statement and don't know what to do. Right. What, what we developed, and I'll, I'll give my son props for this because he was instrumental in this. I had started working in this direction of helping clients build better culture statements. And then when Brian joined the company and he started to get out there in the, 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 the business world, he began to see this and he fine-tuned this. He was the... He was every bit as much of the architect of this as I was. We found out that the best culture statements have three elements to them. Well, one, they're brief. I, I said they're clear, concise, compelling. They're clear, concise, compelling. Easy to understand is what clear means. Concise is brief, and compelling means it uses language that touches the heart. It, mm-hmm. It's got some, some pizzazz to it. It's creative, if you will. But then the three elements of a culture playbook are belief, behavior, outcome if you just list core values or guiding principles or beliefs and you don't provide the behavior element people don't know what to do and here's what the data show about culture if you don't define what you want people to do and what you really mean by your core values people will define it for themselves and they'll define it in a way that they find comfortable and that aligns with their existing behavioral patterns it doesn't lift them to elite level. So what we did is we, we developed this approach where a culture playbook has these three elements. Core beliefs, key behaviors you engage in driven by each of those beliefs, and then the outcomes produced by how you behave. Think about that for a second. Belief would be the what of culture. Behavior is the how of culture. And outcomes would be the why of culture. I did that. You read about it in the book. I did exactly this for Coach Meyer. And and after the 2013 season, uh, and and undefeated in 2012 in the regular season, undefeated in 2013 in the regular season, 24-0 going into the Big Ten championship game against Michigan State. And we lost. That's his first loss in two years. And licked our wounds on that. It was painful. And then we go play Clemson in the Orange Bowl. Lost again. We're at 24 and 2. And Urban and I were talking in his office February following that bowl game, and it's, you know, it's a cold, dark, snowy Columbus day, and, and we're talking culture. And I had the observation. I said, you talk about culture all the time. I don't think our assistant coaches talk about it as clearly and effectively and powerfully as you do. And I think we need to, one, put it in paper, put it in writing, and so it's crystal clear, and then we need to coach the coaches on how to – communicate and build culture in their rooms. We have nine units and the, and the players spend more time with their assistant coach than they do with the head coach. And he and I looked at each other and I said, I've, I've heard you now for well over a year and I'm going to use this template belief behavior outcome. And I'm going to take what I've heard you say, I'm not going to make up anything. I'm going to take what you've said and plug it into that template. And then I had to go speak at a a corporate conference in Vegas. So I said, I'm going to write this on the airplane. I'll email it to you when I land in Las Vegas. I wrote it in 30 minutes using the template. Three beliefs at Ohio State football. Three. Three beliefs. Relentless effort, competitive excellence, power of the unit. That's it. He talked about it all the time. It's now written down. And then there's behavior for each of those three beliefs. The behavior for relentless effort is put your foot in the ground and go 
four to six seconds, point A to point B, as hard as you can. And that's the definition of relentless effort. Four to six seconds is the length of a football play. And it's a metaphor. There's a lot of stuff you have to do at Ohio State football. It takes a lot longer than six seconds. <laughs> I bet. And, and, but, but that's just that. And then the outcome we get from that, we said, is we're tougher than any situation opponent we face. And then we did the same thing for, you know, the other. So we now do this. We've done, gosh, we've done hundreds of these things. And what it is is it gives a behavioral blueprint to culture. It, it, it takes away the conceptualization of it and makes it behavioral. And it's frankly hard to write a brief culture playbook. So, Tim, that's, that was actually – you took me right to my – question or you actually answered it so at Ohio State you guys have three beliefs and there's correct me if I'm wrong I doubt that you say there's a set number but they ha- it has to be clear and concise you can't have a long list of things and I feel like even I as a coach reflecting back on my coaching career I've listed you know 10 10 words and said these are the words we're going to focus on so what would your what would your guidance to us be as coaches of Keep it, keep it in this range as far as how many beliefs you're going to focus on or, you know, the length of your culture playbook. Mm-hmm. So I've seen some companies, Rich Carlton comes to mind, that has a long list and it works for them because they're so good at communicating it. There's a, there's a culture meeting, culture conversation every single day in every Rich Carlton around the world. Hmm. That's how frequently they talk about it and cycle through their statement of core beliefs. It's impressive. Yeah. And they, their mission is uh, ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And they call their core values gold standards, and they just constantly communicate them. So that, that, that's an anomaly. Uh, and here's what I found our trend. And I'm definitely this is true for coaches. Three beliefs. Don't, don't, don't exceed that. Three. And, and I, no one knows why the human brain. It's called the rule of three. But three beliefs. And, and – Think about, and look what Urban did on his, uh, obviously, relentless efforts, effort. Competitive excellence is execution-oriented and power of the units teaming. What if you had elite commitment to effort, elite commitment to execution, and elite commitment to teaming? What would happen on your soccer team, your basketball team, your swim team, your tennis team, your track team, your football team? Your, what would happen if there's elite level of commitment? I mean, uncommon commitment to execution effort and collaboration and teaming what could is that not what every coach wants every organization it's not even just sports anymore and why go beyond that i mean i see all these statements and these fiery statements about quality and 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 again not that that can't be part of it i mean we've got business clients where one of their core beliefs is quality but but you you've got to communicate it in a clear concise compelling fashion you have to and if the list is long People aren't going to be able to do it. What, what, I'm going to give you one piece of science on this. You ready for this? Yes. Here's why lists don't work. Right? You, you ready, Isaac, for a little science on yep. this? A little brain science. The human brain is a pattern recognition system. It processes patterns of information, not bits. And when you exceed the brain's patterning and the brain senses a long list, like if you do seven or eight or nine different things, when the brain doesn't see the pattern, meaning doesn't see how all those things fit together, it stops trying to process the bits and reverts to what's most comfortable and convenient for it. And that's the big mistake coaches make is they get these long lists of things. 
And then you get a long list of things. The human brain, oh, I get the first one. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Right? The second one makes sense to me too. Right? So is the third one. I kind of see how that fits together. Fourth one, I, I what? Fifth one, oh, is that, uh, I punch out. Problem with lists that I've had in the past is it, it is just that. It's a list of beliefs. There's very few behaviors listed, and there's definitely not a behavior linked to every belief. And then there's generalized outcomes. We want to be national championship or a national champion. We want to go seven and three in league. But the picture here that, I mean, Tim just created is you list three beliefs. There's an arrow that goes over to your behavior. There's an arrow that goes over to your outcome. It's three columns with arrows in between and they're connected. And here's your belief. Here's your behavior. This is your outcome. Mm -hmm. And it's as simple as that. And that's what you need. And that's how you communicate it to your players in an effective way. Yes, and what's really cool and powerful about that approach is, and I, I like the fact that you mentioned some coaches will talk about these big goals that they have and this big vision. I'll, I'll tell you what's happening right now this year at Ohio State more than ever is, is, is Urban and the coaching staff. I got, the, got it on my wrist right now. Our entire goal is win the moment. Win the moment. Wait, you, you can't, the only thing you can do in your team to win anything in the future is you got to win today. And the today, it may be the lift, the run, the, the technique, the, the drill that you're doing. The, the win today might be go ahead and make some mistakes because you're not very good at that technique yet and, and make the mistakes you need to make to get the feedback to learn how to do it the right way. And that's where winning happens. The big mistake that, that I think a lot of coaches, even a lot of athletes make, is they, they see too much into the future. And if your mind is in the future, it's not on the moment. The only, I love this, the only moment available to you to achieve your goals is right now. That's the only moment available to you. Yeah. And I see so many people, and I always say this all the time, to win the moment, you've got to be in the moment. And if you're, if you're anxious about the future or you're angry about the past, you're not in the only moment you actually have available to you, which is this one. Right. And what a good culture playbook does is it tells me what to do in the moment. So just go back to, to, to Urban's, Ohio State football. Every moment you need to do what? Relentless effort. I can do four to six A to B right now. Whatever, even if you think about this, even we even teach it when you're injured. I mean, four to six A to B means do the therapy the way you're supposed to. Be in the moment for the therapy. And plus, what other things can you do that you're not playing right now? How can you encourage, etc. Same thing for for. Uh, uh, the, the um, competitive excellence for the execution piece right now. What right now do I need to be executing right this moment? And then how am I loving my brothers and supporting my team right now? Those are all executable in the moment. Now don't worry about the big 10 championship. I don't worry about the college football playoffs. I don't worry about, you know, some Saturday in November. My, my, my best contribution to win in November is win now. And that's where I think a lot of coaches and a lot of players, they're not at that spot. And you got to be at that spot. I hope that's helpful. Oh, absolutely. We've been talking about that, and we've been trying to do that at home and in our work fields everywhere is to be in the moment. You, you can't control what's going to happen even five minutes from now. Right now, mm -hmm. give all your undivided attention. Be the best that you can be right now at what you're doing. So you mentioned – when we were creating or when we create culture, when you first introduce it, it kind of sounded like it's collaborative. 
that you know everybody has a say in it. And that's something that Jen and I have kind of gone back and forth on. You mean it has a say in what I, the I guess culture not a, ought to be? I guess in the development of the culture. And Jen, one thing Jen and I have No, it's, it's, it's not collaborative. By okay. <laughs> we agree. That's how we feel. And we kind of wanted to get your thought on that. Especially as coaches, um, you know, our players are turning over every two, three, at, at, four at most years. And so if we allow players to have input in a culture, we're just going to change every couple of years. And that's not what we want. A culture for a program needs to be consistent. But I guess how much input year to year should players, should employees have? Or what is their role maybe in the creation of the Yeah, culture? I mean, uh, interesting. You guys have the same spot we are. I, we do not recommend that organizations get a ton of input from a ton of people into what kind of culture do you want. In fact, if that's what's going on, the leaders of that entity, the leaders of that team or organization lack the vision necessary uh, to build a culture because you, the job of culture is to energize the behavior needed to execute the strategy. And that's a leadership vision and leaders need to know the strategy, the vision and the culture and the behavior necessary. And thus it's like in urban, there was zero input from anybody else. And not that he's the standard he's not, but, but he is an example. Mm-hmm. And for the reason you just said, and others, one is the, if on an athletic team, you have at least 25% turnover annually, at least. Number two, the athletes don't know. They, they've not lived this long enough. They don't know what – there's just things about how to go about the program and the team that, that they just haven't lived long enough and experienced enough to be wise enough to know what's necessary culturally to make that thing happen. And I, I'm just – we are just big believers, and it's the job of the leaders – the leadership team to sit down and, and develop that, that culture playbook. And I think it's great to socialize it with people, you know, get feedback. You come up with a draft and to go back and, and uh, in a company on a team, uh, coaching staff, head coach, you better have a point of view. You better have a point of view. If you don't, you got work to do. So I think we all agree on that. It's the, coaches or the leader of the program or organization it's their vision that's clear and concise and it's their culture that they're creating tim will you share with us your thought what do you see as the role of a captain in creating or implementing a culture so in 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 the culture of any entity and i think this is amplified in athletic team because of the size and the, the dynamic nature of, of young people playing a sport together. Ultimately, you're not going to get an elite culture until the athletes take ownership of it. And it always starts with the coaching staff, like we were talking before the podcast started about the how cultures drive and drive, and, and you have to. culture. The, the coaches have got to communicate and be relentless and tenacious and driving, communicating, driving, communicating, observing, giving feedback, at some point along the way, the team never achieves greatness unless players step up and take ownership of that process. And whether you call those players captains, uh, but it's a leadership role. And the traditional view is the leaders are seniors. And they're, you know, they're, because I guess seniors are supposed to have, because of their age or something. But Brian and I don't think that the key to leadership is being a senior. And here's why. Physics. Leadership is not authority based on a position that you have been given or a title that you have or an age that you've reached. Leadership is influence 
based on trust you've earned through how you behave. I think it's a good idea to have something along the lines of a leadership council, not, not, not necessarily captains, but a leadership council. Because the problem with captains, or the challenge with captains, is once you've assigned that title, uh, there's some misunderstanding about what that role is. I'm not against having captains. You can have them. But you need to be crystal clear. It's, a, you, it's an earned role. And then there's responsibility that comes with it. You have to execute that role. And number one is earn trust. Be a trustworthy teammate. Be someone that the players and the coaches can trust based on attitude and behavior. You're not a captain because you're a senior. You're not a captain because you're a starter. Not a captain because you score a lot of points. You're a captain because you behave in a way that earns the trust and respect of players and coaches. And that could be a sophomore. You know, JT Barrett at Ohio State, he was, I think, a three-time captain for Mm -hmm. us because he earned that. Uh, All the players respected him in the way he he did his business. Uh, So I think a leadership council can be very helpful, and that's a way to to find out the, 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 the... Chemistry of the team, the, the what's going on, how people are thinking, what are they feeling, what, and and that, but that's not necessarily captainship. That's that's a group of people that that on the team that you listen to and talk to, and there's communication back and forth, and that's a very helpful step. But captain, I think you got to make sure that you you choose or have the team choose people who are trustworthy and who demonstrate the behavioral discipline and live the culture. Because it's very difficult to communicate a culture that you don't live. I mean, it's impossible. If you say one thing and do something, nothing kills culture faster than hypocrisy. Yep. Right. And if you think the culture is important as a coach and you develop the culture playbook and then you have captains who don't live the culture that you communicate, that's working against the right culture you're seeking to build. How is the leadership council selected? And then you mentioned that captains either being team selected or coaching selected. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Probably a com- that last one, probably a combo. I mean, you got to be careful that it, I think the team has to vote, but I think the coaches have executive power over that. And you can't play favorites. I mean, you got to be, it's going to test the character and leadership integrity of the coach because you got to make sure that the, 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 the young women or the young men who are the captains are, again, worthy of the role in terms of their, their trustworthiness. I think the kids should vote. I think that's very. I'm not against the being appointed either, though. But voting is fantastic, as you know, you know who who is respected. Sometimes it's a popularity contest, though. Yeah. And if it is, that's when the coach has to step in and say, "You haven't earned that." So I wonder if, when you're voting, you maybe you know have specific questions. Who do you trust most on the team? Who yeah. lives out our culture most on the team? Yeah. And they're responding to those questions rather than voting yes. on a captain. So you just you just communicated a really powerful thing, and that is don't. It's not just to educate your team ahead of time. Recommit, re, recommunicate the culture, reclarify the cultural standards, the culture playbook, explain the role of a leader, and then give guidance to the team on what reference points and criteria they should use to vote make it clear it's not a popularity contest not interested in who's popular i'm interested in who's trustworthy and something that i've done with teams in the past is like isaac said i've had those questions and i think it's important to have a balance within your your leadership council how you called it or your captains of sometimes you need that captain that's going to get in your face and hold you accountable but then you also need the approachable captain to balance them out and to be very relatable and real. So I I think what I'm hearing from you aligns with actually both of our thoughts and kind of weaves those together. A, a captain to me 
is my link within that that team as a coach of I'm not going to see everything and they see it and they can they can bring me closer to the team and maybe those close those gaps on outside of the field or you you don't see everything as a coach and you shouldn't and we all and this brings me to something else that you guys said in one of the podcasts we just listened to we're all observers right we all have to open our eyes and see and that's where we're really digging deeper into that culture and building that culture or if we all have the same language and we're all have our eyes open to these and we're holding each other accountable to that culture. And so I guess going back to the captain thing, um, what I'm hearing from you is there's not really a right or wrong answer there, but you do need some sort of appointed leaders within your team. My own, my question from that, do you feel that that ever putting a captain band on somebody ever handicaps another kid from feeling like they can lead? Always. Sure. Sure it does. Of course it does. They're human beings. Yeah. And we are human beings and we're all social. And it's, partic- it's acute at high school and college level. It's acute because they're all so socially concerned about how am I viewed. Um, and, I, and it's different between boys and girls, between men and women. It's, it's, there's obviously similarities, but there's also differences from a gender perspective. We, we work with a number of female uh, collegiate athletic teams across the United States, including, obviously, Ohio State. It, coaching men's sports and coaching women's sports is not the same. No. And the relationship piece is a big one. It's funny. And, and, and you, two guys get into a fight out on the football field, a shoving match or getting mad at each other in the locker room, whatever. The next day, it's over. It's done. They've forgotten about it. If two ladies, two young ladies get into a, a, a tiff with each other, it's like two years before it's over. <laughs> and, um, and that's a broad brush. Yeah. And it's not always exactly that way. I know some men, young men in, who still hold resentment, and I know some young women who are able to get over stuff quickly. But, but the reality is that broad brush, that general trend is true, is true. So, yeah, I mean, when you assign a title of leadership to somebody – on a team in a social environment in a collegiate or a high school environment. Yeah. There's going to be something. Oh, why wasn't I selected? And don't, don't my peers trust me? And, and, and of course that's that way, but that's the job of the coach to individually recognize where every athlete is and coach them. That's what it's leadership. And if you're going to appoint captains, make sure you teach everyone what it means. So teach the team what it means. And then you have to mentor those captains to be effective leaders. Back to systems again. You'd better have a clear system for what leadership is and teach it to those kids. To teach, teach it. Don't say be a captain and give them a list of things and generic things they're supposed to do. Give them a system, a simple system that they can execute. And I'll give you one real quick for, for a captains on a, on a team, an athletic team is teach them that you lead three ways. You lead through your attitude, action, and words. There's a simple system. It's a three-part system. You lead through your attitude, you lead through your actions, and you lead through your words. Everyday people feel your attitude. Everyday people see your actions. and Everyday people on your team hear your words. So you'd better lead in in an intentional, purposeful way and match that with our factor. And all of a sudden, you've got discipline action, discipline attitude, discipline words versus what? Default. Yeah, and that's so clear. And it's a simple but effective way to teach our kids. So that brings me to 
first of all, it's very true that women are more emotional and that Isaac and I have talked about this because he made the switch from coaching boys to girls a few years ago. And the first thing I said to him is girls are different. We are emotional beings and that relationship component that you and Brian talk about all the time that we talk about building relationships is important in everybody and for everyone in life, men or women, but for, can I push back a little bit? Yeah, for sure. I understand what you mean when you say women are more emotional, but I, I want to, I'm going to push back on that just from a word perspective. Yeah. I would just say emotionally different. I think men are just as emotional as women. They just express it differently. And the one thing I don't want young women to think is, because I know, again, I know what you and we and the culture means when, quote, unquote, women are more emotional. But literally, I don't believe that's true. No, I appreciate that. Because I know a lot of men who their emotional problem is they don't express their emotion. And that's emotional. Right. Take fear, for example. Women are more open to talk about their fear than men are. And men are afraid to talk about their fear. How about that? Yep. Does that make women more emotional? Well, no, it's just different. And so I just, I just want to make sure, particularly for the listeners to your episodes here, that, and, I, and again, I respect and I think I know what you mean, and you're yeah. involved, you are a woman, you coach women, and I think I know what you mean. But I just think men need to learn, well, here's one. I mean, read the article about Urban in Bleacher Report. The article is, I'm not the lone wolf. I'm not the lone wolf. And the article is about his struggle with anxiety and stress as a football coach and why it caused him to punch out of Florida, to, to, to resign, because he couldn't handle the stress, and he, and he lacked the courage to say, I'm stressed and I don't handle it well. I need help. And yeah. I need help. No, I love that you clarified that, Tim, because we voice, I think women voice it more. Yes, you know? uh, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. It's not may- maybe necessarily like you said. It's not that we're more emotional. We have They're more verbal more. about their emotions than men are. Men are less verbal about their emotions. Is that fair? Yeah, expressive. Abs- yes. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So when we talk about this culture playbook and we talk about the importance of building relationships and earning that trust, do you do you believe that when you go in, do you earn the trust of your players before you present that culture playbook? Or right off the bat, when you bring in for preseason, is that culture playbook the first thing that you're going over? And then obviously throughout everything, we're going to earn trust. And day in, day out, you're going to try to earn more trust and build those relationships. But which one comes first? Or does one come first? I, I think you can do it either direction. Uh, I'm a huge believer of myself. My The approach that I recommend is – Communicate from day one what your culture is. Can put the culture playbook in front of people and say, this is who we are. This is our DNA. This is what we believe in. This is how we're going to behave. Here's the outcomes we're going to pursue. And, and tell everybody, we build this together. This is an us thing because, and you've heard our 20 square feet metaphor. Yep. Mm-hmm. We have this principle we call 20 square feet. And 20 square feet is a metaphor for every person's sphere of ownership of the culture. And everyone, it's, again, it's not a literal space. It's, just, it's, just a, it's a figurative thing. Everyone has 20 square feet and 100% ownership of the culture in their 20 square feet. And here's what happens in most organizations. And I'm, you know, I t- we teach it weekly. And I just, again, just had a workshop yesterday and it came up again. If we were to go to downtown Columbus right now and pull 100 people off of the street, 
let's say we go to Starbucks at lunchtime or, uh, or, or restaurants, or, and just get 100 different people who work for 100 different companies and organizations. And we ask them, each person, who is responsible for culture in the organization where you work? What would they tell us? Every one of them, what would they tell us? Who is responsible for culture in the organization where you work? What would they say? The leader, the CEO. The CEO. That's a problem, folks. Yeah. 20 square feet says otherwise. 20 square feet says, yes, the CEO has leadership responsibility and other things, executive leadership responsibility. 20 square feet says, we all own 20 square feet of the culture. You were to go to somebody at Southwest Airlines and says, who's responsible for culture? They don't use 20 square feet, but they would say, we all are. So here's a problem when it's too leader-led. Remember, fire can cook your food or burn your house down. Don't overlead the culture. Which means what? Take ownership away from the kids. Right. Teach 20 square feet. Right off the bat. Right off the bat. Hey, here's our culture. How about this? Here, here's, a, here's a statement that you can make to your team from day one. Our culture cannot become what you are not. Our culture can't become what you are, what not. You are not. And 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 again, I believe deeply in the power of leadership, and and obviously we teach that. And leaders go first, and the players go second, and then the culture comes third. That's how it works. I would even share that. So leaders go first, meaning you as a coach, you have to communicate it, and you have to lead it, you have to be consistent in your behavior. But right off, in my opinion, right off the bat, you tell everyone in the room, we all have twenty square feet of this thing, all of us. Leaders live it. Players live it. Then our program lives it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't get culture because culture is not something that's declared. Culture is something that's built. Culture is not explained. It's experienced. Uh, culture is not built by documents. It's built by behavior. Those are powerful statements. It's not declared. It's built. Yeah. And you just said culture is experienced. As, as a coach, my hope is that when a, every player leaves my program, they're all going to say the same thing. This was the culture of that program. This is what I experienced. Yes. Yeah. And, and I had a piece of it. Yeah. And notice experience is delivered by what? Take the word. What delivers an experience? Not a document. Documents don't deliver an experience. What delivers an experience? Behavior, attitude, words. That's what delivers the experience. So who is responsible for delivering the cultural experience? Answer, everyone. And that's what I think we need to do as coaches is right from the start say, Hey, we all have a piece of this. Now I'm going to talk about it all the time and I'm going to lead it. And I'm going to be, you know, and, and, and I think a coach needs to be honest. I'm not going to be perfect, but man, I'm going to try. Yep. Man, I'm going to try this. Remember we talked about winning the moment yes. earlier. Here's what I learned about winning the moment. When I first developed the idea, I wanted to, I wanted to start having days where I won every moment because a, a day is a series of moments, right? Practice is a series of moments. You're meeting everything on a team is a series of moments. And so the message is go win them, go win the moments. Well, I thought I could win them all. I could have perfect days. I learned that's not possible. You cannot win all the moments in a day. You, you, you can't even win all the moments in a segment of a day. Maybe you've discovered that in your marriage. You can't <laughs> win all the moments. Okay. For sure. Yeah, so here's what I've learned. Too. Here's what I've learned. And this is mental health one one Just don't lose two in a row. Hmm. Just don't lose two in a row. If you lose a moment because you lost your focus or you gave in to an emotional impulse or you went default or you got whatever, 
let that be a signal to what? Hey, wait a second. I just went default. So press pause, regain my focus. Get your mind right, regain your positive energy with the right kind of self-talk, replace the negative, and step up and win the next one. And that's a pretty cool way to live your life. Yeah. For sure. Something I always say as a coach, don't let your first mistake cause your second mistake. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And don't let, don't let a play you just made that was fantastic distract you from being disciplined in the next mm. one. That's the whole be in the moment thing. So, but that works every place. That's true in, in, in life, period. Can I jump back to the 20 square feet? Is there significance to the number 20? Yes, uh, because of how research-oriented I am and how precise I am in everything. And 10 sounded too small and 30 sounded weird. So <laughs> I, 20 sounded, that's it. No, I mean, it's funny you ask okay, that. Yeah. People ask that all the time, and I'm going, no, it's one of those areas where focusry was not particularly scientific. It was just like, <laughs> I don't know. And if it's in Europe, it's metric, not even square feet, right? It's like... <laughs> That's hilarious. So no, it's a metaphor. Okay. I, I had a guy one time. I did this in London, and and uh, for some business leaders from the from Europe, and this one gentleman said, uh, "Excuse me, I have contention with your twenty square feet." And I said, "What's the contention?" He goes, "I am the global director of this and global manager of that, and my 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 sphere of control greatly exceeds twenty square feet." <laughs> I told the guy, I think I started with dude. I do. I think yeah. I started dude. It, it's a metaphor. You want to add zeros? I don't care. It's 2,000. I don't care. Go metric. It's square meters. I don't care. So, no, there's no significance. Just- That's, <laughs> oh, that's funny. You talked about, um, you know, when we first start communicating this to our players, um, and I think Jenna mentioned, you know, the very first thing that you do in the preseason. How much time is spent, I guess, off the field, off the court, in a classroom setting, deliberately talking about culture and how much of it comes just through the flow of. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I think you can overdo that. Obviously yeah. I think you, I think you need to spend more time than most coach, excuse me, most coaches do. Um, but, but I wouldn't overdo it. And the thing you have to do is tie culture to everything. You, a big mistake is to, is to treat culture like it's a bolt on. Like we do game film and we do we do drills and skills and we do the, oh oh this oh, let's talk about the culture for a second as if it's this separate thing right you have to this and this is the art form and the challenge and difficulty of elite leadership of culture you have to dem- you have to build the culture as you do things so as we're doing drills and skills as we're doing game film as we're doing social things together whatever we're doing here's how our culture shapes that and you have to bring it into those things. And when the athletes experience culture as a 20-minute talk by the coach in a meeting, and that's where they experience culture, and they only experience it there, they're not going to attach culture to playing the game. They're not going to attach culture to how they perform academically. They're not going to attach culture to their social behaviors and their interaction with friends and family and et cetera. Our job as leaders is to show how culture drives all behavior. When you think about we talk at Ohio State all the time about well, ERO, we apply it to those three categories, academics, athletics, and social, constantly. I mean, it's not, a, it's not primarily a football thing. It'll win more games, yes, but if we win games, but we, our, our players don't manage their R in social situations, and we have, obviously we're a football team. We've got 100-plus players. We've got players who don't do what they're supposed to do academically. We work like crazy to make sure those players understand our factor applies to academics. And, and it's really cool to see that when it sinks in, where a player goes from a, a poor academic behavior to good academic behavior to 
great academic behavior. And we explained to them, you're going to leave Ohio State. Most of you are not going to play in the National Football League. Right. And you're going to get married. You're going to be a dad. You're going to have kids. You're going to have a job. E plus R equals O. It still applies when you're 31. And we're going to equip you with skills for life. Something, so I hope that helps. Sorry, yeah. Something I can kind of say, culture leads regardless of who is watching. When you create an elite culture, then more importantly than just on the field, in the classroom, in their friendships, at home, they're going to be living out this culture that they've lived within our program. So we're giving them skills that it will go way beyond the field or the court. Yeah, and here's why. What culture is to the group, character is to the person. But the, the character is individual. Culture is social or group. We define culture as what you believe, how you behave, and the experience and results your behavior produces. Pretty sure you've tweeted that before. We have. I like it. <laughs> what you believe, how you behave, and then the experience and results produced by your behavior. If that's an individual, that's called character. If that's a group, it's called culture. And what you see is character development happens as a result of great culture development and vice versa. I mean, one of the, one of the core principles is the, character, the culture of the team begins with the character of its players. Going back to you talking about weaving culture into everything, something that we were talking about is going off of a podcast that we listened to again of yours was every drill is not a mental and physical rep only for our players. It's a mental rep for us too. It's a, it's a culture check for us. It's a way for us to implement our cultures. And as coaches, that's going to be really interesting this year that each time that I play in a drill or we play in a drill as a coaching staff, that culture is driving everything. And sometimes you don't necessarily think about that. You, you drive that this is going to help us be better finishers. or this is. But you've got to weave the culture into those drills and really think that as a leader and have that be a mental rep for you. Yeah, absolutely. Spot on. Shift gears a little bit. Obviously, there's going to be struggles along the way. This is something you talked about earlier. Do you have any advice, and, and maybe even with specific players? You, know, you referenced the bottom 10%. Um, and not hope I don't mess your words up too bad, but, but they're defiant. They don't want to embrace the culture. They're, they're just not, they don't want it. What do you do with that bottom 10%? And then as a coach, how should you react, I guess, to the bottom 10%? Well, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, uh, be relentlessly, uh, relentless feedback, relentless positivity, relentless coaching until they change your leave. And I, I, I don't. I mean, the bottom 10% are frustrating. The bottom 10% are hard. And, uh, uh, but our job as coaches is, I, I say this all the time, we have to believe in our players sometimes before they believe in themselves. This goes back to the motivation, encouragement kind of stuff. Yeah. Is, you know, encouragement is believing in somebody. That's what encouragement is. You give your strength of heart to them. So if someone does not have strength of heart, which some don't have, our job as coaches is to give it, and we keep giving it. And they may not respond the first time or the second time or the third time. And so I, 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 have, a, I have a deep conviction about the role we can play as coaches and adults in the lives of young people. And uh, I'm as frustrated as anybody by the resistant and the defiant, but I'm a huge believer in 
and is elevate your love without lowering your standards. And I think that's what they need to experience is that you turn to that athlete and say, I see in you what's possible. I read something recently. A lot of, a lot of kids are one caring adult away from making a change in their life. Some there's kids out there who they don't believe in themselves. Uh, they never had anybody that really believed in them or there was sort of some false belief and enablement from an indulging parent or, indulgent parent or something. But as a coach, I'm going to say two things. I love you, I believe in you, and here are the standards. And I'm not going to flex the standards, but I'm going to – I think a great coach is easy to follow and hard to please. Rewinding, guys. In Above the Line, they talk about a 10-80-10 principle. Isaac just mentioned the bottom 10%, but there's a top 10%. There's the majority that falls within that. 80% and then there's a bottom 10%. And I mentioned at the beginning that I had outlined above the line, uh, look, referring to that outline right here, which was years ago. But that top 10% is disciplined, driven, self-motivated. They want to be great and work relentlessly. That 80%, the majority, those are people that do a good job and are relatively reliable. And that bottom 10%, like they were talking about, is they're disinterested, they're defiant. You guys are aware of the suicide rate among teenagers today, right? How it's skyrocketing. Very right. sad. That's the bottom 10% of saying it's hopeless and helpless. And I, I, I look at those people and I say, how can I reach them? And, I, and, and I'm under no illusion about how challenging it is, but I want to make sure that, that if I, whatever touch point I have with that bottom 10%, that what they experience from me is encouragement and motivation. And again, that encouragement is me telling them, I believe in you. I believe you can do this. And the motivation piece is interesting because motivation to me, the difference between motivation and, and, and inspiration is motivation is something that someone finds within themselves. It's, you know, what motivates me to do something? And it's something that you choose for yourself. The role of a leader is to help that person find what that trigger is. Because I don't know what motivates you until I know you. I don't know what motivates you until I know you. And when you find the person and get to know them, they're motivated by different things. Now, I will say this in my study of motivation, there's two kinds, extrinsic and intrinsic. Extrinsic motivation is limited. Intrinsic motivation is unlimited. And one of my jobs as a leader and as a coach is to help kids or help players find that intrinsic motivation. We're all motivated by image. We're all motivated by rewards. We're all motivated by the externals, the extrinsic. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that, I don't think that should be your primary motivator. They don't last. No, they're, they're, well, they're limited and they don't last. Yeah. They're temporary. Whereas internal motivation, intrinsic motivation, you do it for the love of the sport. You do it for the love of your sisters or brothers. You do it for this internal thing. And so you want to, sometimes you're not even sure exactly what it is. I just, I'm doing this because I believe in this. And that's a hard thing to come by. That's a cultivated thing. It's rare that you find a young person today with strong intrinsic motivation. And the notion you're going to find those people, in fact, if you find them, you probably ought not to coach them because they're going to be, <laughs> they, don't, they don't need you. But like you said, they have it in them. You're yeah. just pulling it out of them and getting them to think about it more and define it. Well, well, no. I mean, if we're talking about the bottom 10%? Kids in general, I thought you were saying... No, the, the top, you know, the top, you know, yes, Sorry. the 80% in the middle, the 80% in the middle, it's there. You got to cultivate it. The right. bottom 10% is not there. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So it, who are the easiest to coach top 10%? Who's right. the next easiest to coach the middle 80%. And here's the struggle though. If you've spent all your time in the bottom 10%, you're going to neglect people in the 80. 
or the top 10% don't really need you, Father. So get out of their way. Right. And you, you guys had mentioned in that book above the line, your real goal is to move as many of you can from that 80% into the top, to 10. top 10%. Yeah. And I have, I have my own approach to that slightly different than coach Meyer, but then again, I'm not the head coach at Ohio state football. So, you know, I'm out there working with all these people, all these people, all these people. And, and I don't have, I, I, I have this, this desire to, to reach those bottom 10. Right. And they're the ones that I'm saying. And so what are they, they need encouragement from me to find their motivation. Interesting. You, sorry. Interesting thought. I just had listening to you say that. Do you, delegate that to a certain degree to somebody on your assistant coaching staff of this is your focus. What's the, that you're delegating to them, getting that culture and that motivation piece to that bottom 10%. Those, those few players that are hopefully few players, <laughs> you only had a few players in that in your program, but they're really working hard on those kids. It's, it's depends on the structure of the team. Every coach is responsible, should be responsible for a group of players. That, that needs to be divided up among the coaching staff. Every coach is responsible to build a relationship with a group of players because of the nature of relationship building and trust building it takes time, it takes effort, it takes experience, it takes knowledge, it takes insight, it takes wisdom. So uh, football, we have nine or 10 now, so we have you know, 10 coaches. And just NCAA gave us an extra one this year. We have nine units. I mentioned earlier, and it's in the book. So we, we, don't, we don't even call them assistant coaches at Ohio State. They're called unit leaders. So every single, like Larry Johnson, coaches defensive line. It's his primary job to connect with those young men. Right? Now, Greg Shano now is no longer coaching a unit because they have, they have 10 coaches. So he's now defensive coordinator. So he does that coordination. But, you know, baseball and swimming and and tennis and, 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 and soccer, and every team has its structure, and not everyone is structured like football is, but divide up the players among the coaches and assign as your job, and, and, and it's best if they're you know, offense or defense or there's, there's a functional, there's yeah. a functional uh, uh, organization. You know, this coach coaches this, and this and, 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 but you got to do that because relationships are critical, and it's everyone's job to coach the people in their particular subunit. That makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Can I jump back to the intrinsic motivation piece? You said, you know, finding that passion for the love of the game or the love of your brothers. Does that connect with the R5 make a difference, would you say? Because I think the reason I ask, Jen and I, you know, when developing a vision for a program, believe that it has to be something greater than yourself or for a, another person when you develop that vision. And so we kind of connect that to the R5, make a difference. Is that where the intrinsic motivation comes from, do you think? That's one of them, Isaac. I don't know that it, I mean, the, the intrinsic motivation, it's going to be different for different people. I mean, you talk to certain folks and what motivates you? I just love the sport. I like the people in it, but I, you know, I, I make this observation. Uh, doing a fair amount of interface right now with, with the National Hockey League. I've noticed something about NHL players. They play whether they get paid or not. Yeah. They love playing hockey in a way. I don't think other players necessarily, other players say it, but man, oh man, man for man, player for player. And they tell the most passionate guys in the sport. Now, now along the way, you think about layers of intrinsic motivation. When you add love for your teammates to love for the sport, and then you add to that, 
you know, the money that it supports your family. There's a, it's layers. It's not a singular thing. And it's like anything else in life. It has facets of that, of that stone. It has elements to that system, but it, it's not one thing. I think it's a multiple thing that comes from the intrinsic motivation, but I don't think it's just, I love the guys around me by itself. And that's, I mean, it's the, the ultimate motivator in, in is less love. <laughs> I believe that. Um, but there's lots of different things in there to be passionate about intrinsically, not just one. So if a CEO came to you and you said what you asked, what's the vision for your company? And he says the love of money. Is, it, is that an acceptable vision in your mind? If that's what motivates him? Uh, it depends on what he's trying to accomplish. I mean, if he says love of money and I'm cool with a lot of turnover and uh, people don't last around here and that's okay. That's what we do. I, I don't, I wouldn't do that. I don't like that. I don't, I'm, and, but he says, that's what we do. We, you know, turn them and burn them and it generates a lot of money for us. And I'm okay with that. Okay. I want, if he'd asked me to help him do more, I'd say, no, you're not the kind of company right. we want to work, can't work with. with you. I'd say, don't, don't want to do, I get what you're doing. Yeah. I don't think that's a great way to go. I think that's, I think that lacks a lot of, uh, uh standards that I believe in, but if, you know, and we expected that answer out of you, to be honest, from, just listening to you and knowing what you believe in, we don't feel like that's somebody that you would relate to and want to work right. with or feel like you guys would match up. Yeah, and the equivalent in, in sports is I just want to win. I want to win games. Uh, and, I, I, and, and, and no one says that. No one says I just want to make money and I'm, I'm willing to, I'm willing to you know, do that on the backs of people. And if, if they don't like it, they can leave and I'm fine with you know, 100% turnover. And I just want to win games. I don't care about players. I just, I just want to use them. No one says that. But some people actually act that way. They don't say it. They don't acknowledge it. They don't admit it. How do you handle the kid that you sit down and you talk with and you say, why do you play basketball? Why do you play soccer? And they say, because I love the sport. How do you, what's your process on, because you just said that. You just said love of the sport, but then you talk about peeling back those layers. So how does that conversation go from you go, okay, you you love basketball and that's why you're here. But then how do you coach them through peeling back those layers and getting to maybe a deeper at the core, at their heart reason why? Well, the, the, um, that's the, the, the process of if you've got a culture statement, if you've got a culture playbook and in your culture playbook, there's something about team, which there should be. You, this is teaching the culture, right? And what does it say? Belief. We believe in each other. We believe in the brotherhood. We believe in the sisterhood. We believe in the bond. And then you teach them, let's talk about what that is. How does that trust get built? And there are your key behaviors in your playbook. And then our factor and some other things. And you teach them trust. And this coming Thursday, I, I do brotherhood of trust for our football staff. And then we're going to do the, the players coming up and, and camp starts in August. And it's all about your relationship with each other. Here's the point. You teach it. You teach it. You don't tell them to believe in, their, in each other. You teach them how. Most young people today don't know how to be in a great relationship. They don't. I mean, look at the divorce rate in America. I'm not sure adults know how to be in a great yeah, relationship Yeah, that's what I was just going to say, actually. Yeah. But, but, and we are, like I said earlier, we are social creatures. It's a learned skill. We are naturally self-centered people. When we look at relationships, we say, what is that person able to give to me? Yes. And that's and, not and, the right way to look at no, it. No, in a great relationship, you give more than you take. Yeah, a lot more. 
<laughs> which is ironic because if you do that a great deal, you'll end up receiving more than you gave. Yep. My mom, we just we um, laid my mom to rest on Mother's Day back this past May. Sorry, here. No, she was 92 and was uh, phenomenal. She lived a great life. She died peacefully in her sleep. She did it right. And uh, our our you know celebratory all this stuff was 95% laughter and fun and remembrance and 5% tears. So it was awesome. She did it right. We kept praying that it would go that way and it did. Uh, but my mom was a giver. I mean, a like massive giver. She gave, gave, gave. My, my, you meet my mom uh, when she was living and within 30 minutes, like your best friends. <laughs> and all she wanted to know about you and your kids and your life and where you've been, what you did. And if there's any bad thing in your life, she would soothe you and encourage you. Uh, I mean, she was just unbelievably giving. As a consequence of that, particularly in the last part of her life, last half, she just was, a, she, people, just, they just love to give. People love to give to a giver. Yeah. They don't like to give to takers. Well, and that leads me to my question. You, I've heard you use the term energy giver versus energy, energy taker. Yeah, love that analogy. Um, and it's the same thing. The more energy you give, the more you will get back in return. But, but, Isaac, think about this for a second. And we've, we've touched on a lot of things here. You can't give what you don't have. You can't be an energy giver if you're not an energy creator. Brian Kite's been talking about this recently, and I'm now picked up on this, and this is a big, big emphasis for us going forward. Great leaders, exceptional people, create their own energy. You can get it, go back to intrinsic, extrinsic. You can get energy from two places. You can get energy from the environment, that's extrinsic, or you can get energy from yourself inside, that's intrinsic. Exceptional people, where do they get their energy? Inside themselves. If you get energy from the environment, you are subject to an incredible inconsistency of energy. And how, how's America as a nation right now doing with regard to positive energy as a country? How are yeah. we doing? Right. Not, Not very, very good. good. <laughs> no. And see, this is why young people today are feeling helpless and hopeless. Why? Because no one's taught them how to create their own positive energy. So what are they doing? They're absorbing it from the environment. Well, the environment right now is what? Negative. Kind of negative. So, I, I, yes, be an energy giver, not an energy taker. But you can't give energy if you don't have energy. And you are not going to have it if you don't create it. Is that something you learn to be an energy creator? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's an occasional person that's kind of wired that way, naturally. Uh, but it's a learned thing. It's, a, there's, a, that's, it's discipline as opposed to default. What's BCD? What is BCD? Negativity. It's, it's, negative energy. That's negative energy. It's how, taking energy. Exactly. So how do you learn to not BCD and solve? How do you learn to not BCD and, and be resilient? How do you learn that? Well, you've got to be trained. You're going to have kids you coach who are energy takers. You're going to have kids that you coach that are energy neutral. You're going to have kids that you coach that are self-centered. And you've got to teach them the other way to do it, to be an energy creator than an energy giver. And there will be people on your team that will not learn that the four years they're with you. But may call you up two years after they graduate and say, oh, coach, <laughs> I now get I get what I you're get saying. I get it now, yeah. yeah. And you've got to be tenacious and persistent and just relentless, 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 relentless. Believe in them even though they don't believe in themselves. Yeah, I love that you said that. That is so cute. Before you do anything, you've got to believe in those kids and build that relationship and invest in them. And 
convey to them that you care about them as people and then then you'll earn their trust and then they'll want to follow you and you can lead them and then you'll have that elite culture that you desire level of care drives level of connection level of connection drives level of commitment every coach wants total commitment from their players well that only happens when you're connected to the players to the athletes and that and the connection doesn't happen unless they experience you caring about them so caring drives connection and connection drives commitment. You want max commitment? Build a max connection. Want max connection? You got to love them and care about them. And even and you said that they experience you care about them. Caring about them is not enough. They've got to know that you care about them. You've got to tell them and you've got to show them that you care about them. It's about their perception. Yes. Or, or their experience to the point. Yeah. 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 And our definition of caring is find out what's important to the other person and then make it important to you in a way that, in a way they can feel it. Yeah, yeah, caring, caring is not how you feel about them. It's how you make them feel. And, and what's interesting is caring isn't an emotion. It's, a, it's an action. It's not something you feel. It's something that you do. We have equated caring incorrectly in America today with feeling. It's not. Caring isn't a, it's not something you feel. It's something that you do. Think about this. It's most important to care about people you don't feel like caring about. Even marriage. I mean, I don't want to get, this is not a marriage therapy session, but <laughs> are there times when you're kind of, kind of a little bit irritated at the guy? Maybe just sometimes. Are there times when you kind of get irritated at, at, at Jenna? No, 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 <laughs> never. And, and, there was that one time. And, and what does R factor or what does elite behavior ask you to do in those times you're not feeling so good about Jenna or you're not feeling so good about Isaac? What does R factor ask you to do? Make the decision. Make the discipline-driven choice. I always say this all the time. How you feel is not always a good reference point for what you should do. And if you live by, I'm only going to do it if I feel like it, that's the definition of default. That's the definition of below the line. Stress is the importance of that pause component for sure. Huge. Although, although again, you can press pause and then still do a dumb thing afterwards because right. you didn't use right. any system. So we always say press pause and then bring discipline to the situation. That's the purpose of the pause. So... We could sit here, obviously, and talk to Tim for hours upon hours, and he's given us a lot to think about, and he has laid out a system to build elite culture. And, Tim, we are so, so grateful for you to be here, and we, like I said previously, think so highly of you. Um, I do encourage everybody to check out – uh, what Tim's doing at Focus 3. Tim, I'll let you share where they can find you and kind of what you guys are doing at Focus 3, where they can find you on social media. Mm -hmm. Yeah, our website is focus3.com. It's the number three, focus3.com. I'm on um, Twitter a lot, at Timothy Kite, and it's K-I-G-H-T. Uh, same on Instagram, although I don't post on Instagram <laughs> very much. Um, are you on Facebook yet? No. <laughs> no, the, the Facebook thing. I, that's I think my social team is my social media team has given up on me and Facebook. Um, I, you know, it's funny the whole social media deal. I love social media, but I I, I like it selectively. I and it's just I, I um, I'm limited and selective and hopefully fairly. Well. I am going to start doing a lot more on LinkedIn. A lot more on LinkedIn. Okay, but um, uh, at Timothy Kite on Twitter, at Timothy Kite on on Instagram. Uh, our company is on Facebook. So we got tons of good stuff. And I've heard Brian get on you several times oh, yeah. about the Facebook. Oh, yeah. So that's oh, yeah. why yeah. I, I, oh, yeah. no, that. you're not, <laughs> you, you would not be the only person that's picked up via our, our uh, podcast that, uh, on that. And, and 
Brian, my son, is at T Brian Kite, and he does a ton of stuff on Twitter and and um, Facebook and Instagram. He's got a great Instagram stories, a lot of stuff. So I'd encourage you at T Brian. Do you know his first name is Timothy? I did. Okay. I, yeah, I caught up that on the, one of those episodes. I yeah. think you referenced that. Yeah. So uh, uh, focusread.com, uh, Twitter at Timothy Kite or at T. Brian Kite. would love to have uh, more followers. If Brian listens to this, Brian, you're not mad at all about somebody having that at Brian Kite Twitter handle. <laughs> <laughs> he tried to get it. He tried to get it, but uh, didn't give it up. But uh, he is T. Brian, so that, that's an accurate description. <laughs> And if yeah, and if you want to give them a follow on Twitter, they they put out some phenomenal stuff, and they're you know they're short reads and really some motivational, inspirational, encouraging type of things that you guys are putting out on Twitter. If you have a little bit more time and want to check out their podcast, their podcast is phenomenal as well. So I highly encourage if you haven't heard that and you want to know more about some of the things uh, that Tim is talking about, that's a great way to do it. Certainly uh, check Jen and I out on social media as well. You can find me on Twitter at iclop. And me at Jenna Klopp, J-E-N-N-A-K-L-O-P. And you can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Culture Curriculum. And feel free to check out our website as well, culturecurriculum.com. So like Jenna said, I will echo, uh, we have a tremendous amount of respect for Tim and are grateful for everything he's done for us and are very thankful to have him on the podcast today. So until next episode, let's prepare to stay the course.